I was talking this week. Someone asked me, you know, if I was enjoying, you know, my labor. And I said, I think the thing that I'm the most grateful for is a church uh, who does not easily grow tired, you know, of the scriptures. <laughs> not, you grow tired. You definitely grow tired. And you're growing hot right now, apparently. I can see people fanning. So if someone wants to try to help maybe, you know, uh, knock that down a bit, then we can... But I'm grateful for a church family who's committed to the scriptures. And, um, and it was the thing that I most reflected on when I was asked that question. So, Well, let's, uh, let's read together verses 24 and 25 of Jude and his concluding doxology and his attempt to finish uh, our four causes of worship that we derive uh, from it. Verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a great worship song right there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word uh, and the time that we get to spend this morning considering each each note of this little song carefully. Each word, each phrase, uh, as, as carefully as Jude penned it, may we comb over it. As inspired as the words are by your spirit, may we give this our full attention. As perfect of a worship song as this is, (laughs) may we devote ourselves to it. For your sake, for your glory, for your reputation, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's not an uncommon thing for Leslie my bride, to ask me on a Saturday night or on a Sunday morning, uh, hey, how are you feeling? Right? Um, How are you feeling about the sermon? How are you feeling about tomorrow? Um, I think think she experiences uh, any kind of like anxiety or whatever, like she lives it, you know. If I don't feel confident, if I don't feel ready, if I'm not feeling enthusiastic, I think she wears that, you know, like a cloak. Uh, and so I always answer the same way. Feeling great, even if I'm not. <laughs> feeling great. Uh, but this particular weekend, uh, she asked me, how are you feeling? And, and I said, I'm, I'm excited. I get, to, I get to teach about my favorite thing, worship. Yeah. We worship God, according to this doxology, for four reasons. At least this is my best understanding of the structure of Jude's doxology. We worship him, and the slide should still be in there from last week. We worship him first because he keeps us. Right? He keeps us from stumbling. Not struggling, but stumbling and falling. The word is apostatizing. He keeps us from becoming apostate. Struggling is part of growth, but he keeps you if you are in his hand 
from stumbling out of it. If you know someone who has seemed to have stumbled out of Jesus' hand, you have to recalibrate your thinking on that. We cannot stumble out of his hand. If we have stumbled away and rejected him, either A, we will come back, or B, we were never in his hand to begin with. Uh, we cannot view our who we believe to be Christian brothers and sisters, our friends who have deconstructed from the faith or who, have, who were raised in the faith but walked away from the faith, we cannot let our minds entertain the phrasing that they have stumbled out of the faith. They were never in it to begin with. Or God will keep them in that he will convict them and he will bring them back. In fact, there's other scripture where, I believe it's in Hebrews, where the Lord promises that he will take your physical life from you before he will allow you to apostatize. He keeps you from stumbling. And when you think about the confidence that that gives us, the assurance, the peace, So many of us, especially when we are young and undeveloped in our faith, we spend many days, many moments in angst, wondering, did I really repent? Am I really redeemed? Did I say it right? Did I feel the right thing? I certainly didn't break out in a cold sweat or levitate for a moment when I got saved. Am I really redeemed? And we we might spend needless time worrying Friend, I would tell you, number one, he keeps you. And number two, if you're worried about it, that's probably a good sign. (laughs) Because you know what? The unrepentant, the unredeemed, the rebellious, they do not care. They're not concerned. So be comforted, friend. He keeps you. His power and might are strong enough to overcome even our doubts. I love the, the story where... Jesus is is telling, he's compelling the man, you know, if you believe. This can this can happen for you if you believe. And he says, I, I believe, but help my unbelief. Right? It's such a relatable phrase, isn't it? I believe, but help my unbelief. It's so human. And it if for no other reason, friends, even if we can't fully grasp the grandeur of his powerful hand holding us, we should worship the Lord with a particular confidence that he keeps us. The second thing we learn is that we worship God because he will present you blameless before the throne. We find that in that same verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and separately... An additional thing he is able to do, he is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. The presence of his glory. It's an interesting phrase, right? It should, Bible students, bring to mind notions of the pillar of fire emanating from the tabernacle. And then the regulation that came through God to Moses to the rest of the people that said, stay away. Don't come too close to the tabernacle. Don't come. Don't 
peer in. Don't try to look over the walls. Don't try to fix your eyes on the Ark of the Covenant. Why? This is the presence of God's glory. Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And he said, I can't, right? I'll show you my backside, which is the best rendering that we could understand in English, right? This is, this is full-faced. You know, this is like, you know, you're getting, you know, just the, 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 the line of my haircut, you know, right? You're not, getting, you're not getting all my expression or all of my intensity when I'm faced this back way. You kind of get a sense of what I'm saying because you can hear me. That's the idea. God said, I can show you my backside. I can't show you my face. I can't expose you to the, quote, presence of my glory. Why? Because Moses is sinful, like you and I, wrapped in sinful flesh, repentant, committed, but dirty, if you will. God says, my, the presence of my glory would obliterate you. And I'm not done with you. <laughs> so I need you alive for a few more years. So I'll show you my backside. I'll hide you behind the rock. The rock, of course, that is Christ. There's many layers of symbolism there. But we worship him because Jesus is able to present us before the presence of his glory. That presence that would otherwise obliterate Moses and obliterate you, Jesus is able to present you before the throne. And instead of being in fear, we read that we will have great joy because he presents us faultless. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to worship the Lord in response to the fact that in spite of your sin, that in spite of your brokenness and your inconsistency, right? In spite of your doubts, in spite of, in spite of realizing, mm, last week I said, mm, I'm trying and I'm still missing it. Last year, I, ooh, when I was in my 20s, ay, ay, ay. Oh, the greatness of my sin and my shame. Alistair said, if you knew me, you wouldn't listen to me preach. And if I knew you, I wouldn't preach to you. Friends, that's because all of us are riddled with shame. And if we're not riddled with shame, it's because we're lying to ourselves, 1 John chapter 1, about the sin that's in us. We're all riddled with shame. If, if any of us were to have our, the full book, the full record opened up here before the rest of the church body and say, here is every moment, every wicked thought, every evil selfish deed, every moment of lust and anger and frustration, lies, right? Oh, gosh, friends, we would, we would be crushed by it, wouldn't we? And to think that he presents you before the throne, God having the gaze that can see through any of our pretending, and instead of seeing through the veneer that we put on, I'm doing fine, and instead of just seeing through that and seeing all that shame, he sees through it and sees the perfection of Jesus. This is why we worship. We don't worship because the song has got a good beat. 
or the, the swell of the lyric is emotional, the lighting is just right. That's all silly exterior things. We worship the Lord because we imagine the greatness of our sin and just how strong must be the perfection of Jesus to blanket and cleanse us from all of that in order to put us before the presence of God's glory on his throne. And instead of him obliterating us, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. That's why we worship the Lord. That's why we worship the Lord. We worship God because he keeps us. We worship God, secondly, because he presents you faultless, miraculously faultless before the throne. And number three, we worship because the Lord does this with joy. The Lord does this with joy. Look, he's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Look, with great joy. That God keeps his children and preserves them for his blessing is presented not as a burden, but as a delight. Not just here in Jude, because there's some question, well, who has the joy? Is it God that's having the joy, or is it man that's having the joy, right? Read it both ways. He presents you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's like you have great joy. But then read it again. He presents you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Like he's stoked you're there. Which is it? Well, we go to the other texts of Scripture to help us. Number one, Deuteronomy chapter 29 reads, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, because they ate manna, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You had everything you needed. For 40 years, your sandals didn't even wear out. Does that sound like a God who is begrudgingly blessing and protecting his people? Doesn't read that way to me. How about Job, or excuse me, Joshua? Chapter 24, then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods because it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed and the Lord drove out before us these people, the Amorites who lived in the land and so forth. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Did they say, we also will serve the Lord because we feel guilty that he rescued us? We will serve the Lord because, well, he's kind of dangling it over our heads, you know? Hey, I saved you. Worship me and have fun. Right? I do that to my kids sometimes. We're going to have family time, and we're going to enjoy it. And you're going to laugh at my jokes. Is that the tone of the Lord in the Old Testament? You, I saved you, you bunch of punks. Now, sometimes, right? <laughs> right? But, but the, Lord's, the Lord's providential oversight of his people 
preserving them and rescuing them and protecting them, it's not presented as a burden to the Lord or as some kind of begrudging action, but as the Lord's perfect means of revealing himself to the world. This is his delight. It's good. What is the reasonable response to the God who so selflessly preserves you, forgives and takes away your sin? Well, it's this, what the people said in Joshua. We will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now, if that weren't enough, the writer of Hebrews gives us insight into the very mind of Jesus. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He keeps you, Christian. If your salvation began with you, was dependent upon you, you would lose it. You and I would have stumbled our way right out of his hand a long time ago, multiple times over in fear, in doubt, in lack of understanding, in times of trial, in unanswered prayer, but he keeps you. By his sovereign power, by his loving hand, he presents you as his bride, adorned in the white clothing of his righteous perfection to the Father. Here she is, my bride, the church. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it, that's you, up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's a remarkable thing to think that God does all of this with great joy. And in case we had any doubt about that, we can jump ahead in my notes a little bit to Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The Lord will sing. This is a remarkable thing to imagine, isn't it? If you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, you might remember in the first book, the magician's nephew, Aslan the lion, is, is, uh, he's creating Narnia. And, and what the children who find themselves in Narnia before it is, if you will, born, there's just darkness everywhere they look. And then suddenly they hear this music, this singing. And then light, right? And then the ground beneath their feet begins to erupt with grass. And then as the light gets brighter, they see... Aslan, the lion, and his mouth is open, but he's not roaring. It's, he's singing. 
And as he sings, all of the created order comes to be. It's a beautiful depiction. It's very easy to imagine the the demeanor of the God of all creation, the judge who will judge. It's easy to imagine him as a, a hard man. It's good for us to be reminded that he will sing over you. He will receive you into his presence with great joy. Spurgeon said, I think this is the most wonderful text in the Bible. God singing over you. And so he presents you with great joy. He presents you faultless with great joy. His joy, but also our joy. There is some debate about the joy Jude's speaking of here. And so we take this to affirm the joy that we will also have on the day Christ returns and believers are brought into God's presence. Not filled with sorrow or regret, but with great joy. That we will be presented, Jesus presenting you before the throne. You won't stand there, according to Jude, riddled with guilt and shame and regret, but you'll stand there with great joy. How can this be? Perhaps Ezekiel, perhaps Ezekiel can shine some light on this. There's a point in Ezekiel where the Lord promises that on that day, that, that great day when he rescues his people, and they are, as we're seeing here with Jude, presented before the throne, entering into eternal peace with God. It, it reads, God says, I will remove from them even the memory of their own sinfulness. What a gift. What a gift. How is it possible that you will stand before the throne presented by Jesus, clothed in his righteousness, and you'll be joyful in that moment? Well, you're glad you're getting in. There's that right? You're glad that the the righteousness of Jesus is cloaked over you as if you had accomplished it instead of your own sinfulness. You're glad for that too. So there's one, there's two. But if we take Ezekiel, the picture is painted that you will stand before the throne of God without even the memory of your own shame. This is why we worship the Lord, friends. This is why I say, it isn't about the song. It isn't about the lyrics. It isn't about the skill of the musicians. It isn't about the the rousing, pulsating beat of the drum. It's about the truth that we know. And if it's not about the truth that we know, then we're worshiping emotions instead of the God who receives us with joy as we stand before him blameless with great joy. One commentator noting, Jude doesn't specify whether it's God who is overjoyed or the humans. The whole scene is saturated with joy. 
<laughs> I like that. Now you contrast what is being promised here in this doxology by Jude. Contrast that against every instance in the Bible where an individual comes face to face with God. Are they blameless? Are they joyful? Let's just read a few. Ezekiel, that was terrified. It says that he, it's the end of chapter one in Ezekiel. It says that he fell on his face and the Lord said, stand up. Don't be afraid, stand up. And then Ezekiel says, and the spirit entered me and made me stand. <laughs> like, I can't do it. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoop, you know, okay, I'm here, <laughs> right? I'm not animating my own. I, it's like the spirit has me, I'm up. I'm like, it's like weekend at Bernie's, you know what I mean? Like, like he can't do it. The Lord stands him up. He's, he's out, man. He is on his face. Isaiah, famously in chapter six, he says, woe is me. He pronounces a curse on himself. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips. And he fell on his face. John in Revelation falls down on his face. When I saw him, I, listen to this, fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. So not only was he collapsed, but he was also afraid. If we stood before God's power and presence in this body of flesh, we too would be terrified. But because we would be presented before the throne blameless, we will have joy. Not only that, if, if it's true, as Ezekiel promises, that, that, that the, even the memory of our sin and shame will be removed from us, we should also recognize that while we live in this unredeemed flesh, Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, remember this from two weeks ago or last Sunday? It was two sermons ago. That's what I know. Talks about how we, while sin's power has been removed from us, we are no longer enslaved to it. Sin's presence remains. So that while God enables and gives to us a new will, a will that can actually choose good as opposed to our unredeemed will that can only choose evil, a will that can choose good, that, that still, while we are cloaked in this unredeemed flesh, our will is still poisoned to sometimes be inclined towards evil. But such will not be the case when we stand before the throne, blameless, this is how MacArthur puts it. We will only be capable of doing what is right and true. You will only be capable of doing what is right and true. And instead of fear and panic, we'll be overwhelmed with joy. And what will we do? I imagine we'll join with the angels as they sing. Right? You read Revelation chapter 4, and there seems to be a lot, of, a lot of singing going on in heaven. Day and night, they're singing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? They circle his throne night and day, and it says they never cease. Friends, I would argue, if you're not into singing and praising God here on earth, you're going to be miserable in heaven. Seems like there's going to be a lot of singing. 
Well, if we need any other reason, as if we needed any other reason, beyond him keeping us and him presenting us blameless before the throne and him doing so with joy himself and us being able to be there with joy, free of the entanglement of sin, even the memory of sin, the ability to sin, as if that weren't enough. Jude says, fourthly, He is your God, Savior, and Lord. And so I've put it in this order for our notes, Savior, Lord, and God, just for our observation. Three phrases, right? To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Number one, he is your Savior. The the word implies that of a champion, a deliverer. Hosanna, David fighting Goliath, your representative. I love it. We just, my family and I are reading 1 Samuel in the evenings right now, slowly together. You think these sermons are long. Wait till you sit in my living room at 8 o'clock at night. (laughs) There's this point where David is facing down Goliath. David said to the Philistine, you come at me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of your whole army this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly that is the army of Israel may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear but with what friends the cross he saves not with sword and spear he saves with a cross for the battle is the Lord's he's your savior he's your champion this is is so such a wonderful scene David and Goliath It's the greatest story. Why? Because Goliath represents that that impenetrable enemy. That that enemy who you cannot defeat. The army of Israel is terrified. The great King Saul hiding in his tent. The giant of a man clothed in armor. Impenetrable, unbeatable. You don't stand a chance and everyone's afraid. He is your enemy, friend. He is sin and death. We watched our whole world turn upside down because of the fear of death. Why? Because death is unbeaten. 100 out of 100, right? And in comes David. The representative for the people. Goliath says, pick a man and we'll fight. And the outcome of that battle will be applied to the prospective armies. Your representative, our representative. Jesus is our representative. Down in the valley at the battle line. And we are like the army of Israel. Incapable. Afraid beaten before the battle has even begun. And yet, 
after David slays Goliath and cuts off his head, the next thing we read is that the whole army rushes down the hill and chases the enemy and collects the loot. They participate in his victory. The outcome of the battle is applied to the army who was previously trembling in their boots, right? He's your savior, your representative, your champion. Secondly, he's your Lord. Lord means master, ruler with absolute authority. It's used 7,000 times in the Bible, that English word. Perhaps God is trying to make a point. He's in charge. This is his world. He is the ruler of all creation. He made it. He made you. He revealed himself graciously, and he has the right to rule. And then by his obedience, even unto death on the cross, Jesus is awarded this authority by the Father. That's how the Great Commission starts. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. He's the Lord of all, all authority. So if he says jump, you say how high? If he says endure, you say okay. If he says grieve, you grieve. If he says, hold on during temptation, during trial, during testing, during struggle, during bankruptcy, during grief, at the loss of a child, at the loss of a spouse, at the loss of a parent, in times of war, if he says, hold on, we hold on. Because he's in charge. He didn't say understand. He said persevere. Thirdly, he is the only God, to the only God, our Savior. The term Jude uses here is theos, from which we get the conjunction word theology. Ology being the study of theos, God, the study of God. But it's interesting, he says, to the only God. He doesn't use the term for Yahweh, or even the term for Elohim, that is, you know, the triune God, let us make man in our image, that's Elohim. He doesn't use those. He doesn't use Jehovah. He uses Theos. That's the generic term for God, saying he is the only God. There are pretenders. There are false versions. There are wannabes, but there is only one true God. He is the ruler of all and the savior of his people. What we can do is we can back up for a moment and we can say Jude gives you one reason to worship because he is the only God, your Savior and Lord who rules with absolute authority. That's enough for us to say, yes, sir. It's a kindness that he says he also keeps you from stumbling and he presents you blameless before the throne. You'll have joy. God will have joy. But just in case we have to kind of like break it down to brass tacks, the bare bottom, the foundation of it all. Why do you worship? He's the only God. He's your savior and he is Lord of all. Things might not have worked out for you so far, friend. Right? 
Things may have gone very sideways in your life, in your plans, in your hopes, in your ambitions. We worship the Lord because he's the only true God. He is the Lord of all, and he's your savior. One of the main thrusts of Jude is combating idolatry, primarily in the form of false teachers who set themselves up over the authority of God's word and therefore over God himself to be listened to, followed, and worshipped. But listen to this ways Listen to this list of ways we humans rob God of his glory. Israel with the golden calf attributed to another what God has done. Attributing to another what God has done. Balaam's error is the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all evil. Shepherds who feed themselves, whose God is their stomach, self-service, over all else. These are all listed in Jude, by the way. Verse 5, verse 11, verse 12, now verse 16, the ungodly boast about themselves. If we're boasting about ourselves, who are we not also boasting about? God, right? You can't. You can't say, I am great and he is great in the same moment. If you're boasting about yourself, you're not boasting about God. My wife shared a, a, a new song by the Gettys, uh, Keith, Keith and Christian Getty with our, our family during family worship the other night. I want to read some of the lyrics. Uh, what wonder of wonders, what love is this that Christ would die for me? His goodness, his merit, his righteousness, this sinner's only plea. Oh, foolish pride, be crucified. The work is finished. All my boast is in Jesus. All my hope is his love. And I will glory forever in what the cross has done. All my boast is in Jesus. We rob the glory of God when we boast of ourselves. Let the one who boasts, Paul quotes Jeremiah, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Jude simply concludes his letter with this ultimate affirmation that there is only one God. He is our Savior, our champion, our Lord. Is there anyone else who deserves our unrelenting adoration or our undying fealty. And so the application comes quite simply, right? We worship him. <laughs> worship him. What do we do with this, pastor? Worship him. Come, let us worship and bow down. Now unto him. One teacher said, if those who are being taught this passage leave thinking, well, that's very interesting, then the teacher has failed. If those who are being taught this passage leave praising God because he's so glorious, then the teacher has succeeded. I want to succeed. So now unto him be what? Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Glory, it's, the, it's where we get that phrase doxology, doxa. Glory. To ascribe to God glory means to acknowledge that God is the highest being in existence above everything and everyone. It means that he is preeminent and supreme. When combined with words like majesty and power or dominion and authority, 
It means that God's power and majesty and authority are above everyone else's power, majesty, and authority. To ascribe to him glory is to know this, to think on this, believe on this, be in awe of this, sing this, meditate on this. To him be glory. He's the greatest. To him be glory and majesty, which is greatness, dominion, which is power and authority. This is the word that speaks of ownership. Before all time and now and forevermore. By including the past, present, and future in the doxology, Jude reminds the reader that we are not just looking forward to Christ's coming in the future. The power, majesty, and authority, and the glory of God are available now as the Spirit dwells in us and with us now as we live. And so, let me just leave you with these four things. (laughs) Sorry. I I know it sounds comical. Um, No one else laughed. Four things that kind of resonate in this passage, and then we're going to sing. Four things to focus on in worship. You focus on God's saving power, on His forgiveness, His holiness, and His timelessness. Saving power, forgiveness, holiness, and timelessness he is outside of time he deserves glory not just because of what he's done for you he deserves your praise not so long as he helps you he's worthy of our praise before you were born saving power what did I say? it's over there saving power, what's the second one? His forgiveness, that's right. What's the third one? His holiness and his timelessness. Let's stand and sing together, friends.